When you think of the greatest songwriters ever, who do you think of? Go ahead, take a second, think about it. Odds are that when you thought about it, you came up with a list of names. You might think of late greats like Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, or Stephen Sondheim. If you're from my parents' generation, then Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, and Stevie Wonder probably come to mind. My generation owes many of our memorable hits to Max Martin, Taylor Swift, or Jay-Z. Or maybe you're more of a duo person. Famous pairings like Rodgers and Hammerstein, McCartney and Lennon, the Gibb brothers. Maybe you even know who Holland, Dozier, and Holland were. They wrote many of the great Motown hits like Stop in the Name of Love and I Can't Help Myself. Let's save a debate over who qualifies as great for another day. But you may have noticed that the names you thought of are all in small groups or as individuals, right? You probably didn't think of any groups of four or five. It's mostly solos and duos. Funny story. Over the last 30 years, the average number of credited songwriters on charting hits in the U.S. has gone up steadily and consistently. It was 2.1 in 1990, and last year it had grown to 5.5. There are some hits that actually have 15, 16, even 21 credited songwriters now. That's a very crowded room. I don't know how that many cooks fit in that kitchen, let alone write a successful song that way. At the same time, the number of songs written by just one or two people appears to be going down. There were just three of them among the top 25 most streamed songs in the U.S. in 2018. So why the change? Some of you may be thinking, of course, that's why pop music isn't as good as it used to be. There aren't any great songwriters or songwriting teams anymore. And that's a perfectly fine position to take. I get it. But I think something else may be happening here. I'm Jake Kassman, and here's what I'd like to do in this episode. I'm going to explore a practice that's called group or collective songwriting. I'm going to try and learn how and why this practice is used and by who. Then I'm going to compare this practice to the changes that are happening in the popular music songwriting process. And finally, I'm going to tell you why I think that the pop music world may be, at least in part, catching on to something that other musicians, like music therapists, activists, and educators, have known for a while. In fact, it might be something that we all used to know, but forgot somewhere along the way. This is Harmony in Numbers, group and collective songwriting. Why would you want to write songs in or with a large group? If you want the glory and success of the names we just mentioned, maybe you wouldn't. But there are a lot of other reasons why someone, or lots of someones, might write a song. First of all, you might be new to songwriting. You might not even consider yourself a songwriter. And walking the path of the Lennons and Martins of music history might feel really intimidating. Or maybe you have a lot you want to say in a song, but you're not sure how or not comfortable with sharing it yet. If you're in a songwriting class and your instructor senses this is the case, they may have the entire class write a song. I've done this with songwriting students of all ages and classes I've taught, just as my undergraduate songwriting professors did with me. But don't just take it from me. This is Dr. Kat Reinert, a music educator and artist who specializes in teaching songwriting. I think a lot of people, when they come to songwriting, they're, they're worried they're not going to be good at it. And I think it's really important to let them know that they're not going to be good at it. Like, and that's okay. Um, and to give them permission not to be good at it. You know, I think we forget that really fast. And you have to do it a lot. So to expect that, I think in the group songwriting thing, it takes some of the pressure off anyone feeling they have to be the best or good at it. She's right, of course. In addition to there being some safety in numbers when you're starting out, songwriting, like any other skill, requires tons of practice. And practice can be much more fun when you're doing it with other people. The trade-off, however, is that while there is safety in numbers, the songwriters in the group need to be able to communicate their ideas clearly and listen to others' ideas respectfully. But if you can do that, you might be onto something. 
Another reason you might write a song together is because the group of you have had similar or shared experiences. You already have a topic or image in your minds, and you want to hone that vision together in a way that makes sense to everyone. Dr. Brett Genzel-Derman is a psychologist and the founder of Innovative Group Psychotherapy, or IGP, in Los Angeles. She manages a program called Acoustic Youth, in which young people work with a mentor musician to write and record their own songs. They also incorporate some group songwriting, and it turns out that that song can be about, well, almost anything. So many of our kids come in and they feel awkward and embarrassed and, you know, it's hard for them to put out their ideas. And so one of the best ways to do that is just be like, well, let's just, you know, write a song about, I don't know, tuna fish or a paperclip or whatever. So that is, um, that's one way to kind of, you know, provide levity to then get yourself to that other place, deeper places. Um, And we recently wrote a song about shame. And so everybody in the group had to go pretty deep. Mm. When you talk about shame, you're really dealing with core, core issues. Um, And then, yes, you're correct. That song was pretty powerful because each person um, was vulnerable uh, and transparent with the group about really what, what causes them shame. So the topic can range from the emotionally deep to the totally inane. But writing a song about that kind of shared experience with a group who you share it with can be extremely powerful. Quetzal Flores and his wife, Dr. Marta Gonzalez, are the founders of the Grammy Award-winning band Quetzal. They come from a tradition of artivistas, a combination of the Spanish words for artist and activist, that continues in the Chicano-Chicana communities of Los Angeles and beyond. Here is Quetzal explaining the power of collective songwriting as a community-building tool. It's something that is absolutely valued and valuable in our community, and, and the, the, especially the community folks love to do it. They, they ask for it, right? Right. And they know it's a thing. They know it, it exists, and they, they ask for it because it, it helps them to process things in a way that is creative, is regenerative. It tends to be non-extractive. Like, you know, going to meetings, spending three hours in a meeting, it can be exhausting, right? And then, uh, but going to a meeting and then singing, writing songs and, and writing a song and singing and like laughing and like, you know, crying and, you know, just letting it all out there. It's a very different mode. I want to be clear that in our conversation, Quetzal Flores was careful to specify that he and Dr. Gonzalez called their work collective songwriting, not group songwriting. I think there is a great deal of overlap between these two concepts, but group songwriting seems to be the term of art in music therapy and music education, whereas collective songwriting is the preferred term in the community-building activism space. I'm going to try and use both terms in these specific contexts throughout the episode. Anyways, this collective songwriting practice that Quetzal just explained to us is used to build and bridge communities around the world. The Yakima Nation of Native Americans have run a collective songwriting program with researchers and educators from the University of Washington for several years now. Their work was directly inspired by the work of Quetzal Flores and Dr. Marta Gonzalez. Young people are brought together over several weeks to write a song that combines their lyrical ideas with popular music influences and traditional tribal music practices to express their pride and their cultural legacy. And around the world in Israel-Palestine, there is an organization called Heartbeat Inc., that brings together 8 to 12 Israelis and Palestinians multiple times a year for a program in music co-creation, and a major component of their curriculum is, you guessed it, collective songwriting. There are countless other examples from all over the globe. So those are some of the reasons why you might write a song with a large group. You might feel safer, you might need practice, or you might have something in common with your co-writers. Now let's learn a little bit about how this group songwriting process might work. Dr. Felicity Baker is the head of music therapy at the University of Melbourne and the leading expert on songwriting in group therapy settings like IGP's Acoustic Youth Program. And it turns out that this is a widespread practice in group therapy. Dr. Baker and the late professor and music therapist Dr. Tony Wigram wrote a book on the subject in 2005 called Songwriting, Methods, Techniques, and Clinical Applications for Music Therapy Clinicians, Educators, and Students. 
In it, they noted that there is extensive research on how groups of patients of all ages, backgrounds, and experiencing a variety of health conditions can benefit from group songwriting. These health conditions include emotional difficulties, mental health issues, and traumatic brain injuries, and include patients in palliative or aged care. At the end of their book, Wigram very helpfully made a loose model of how songwriting programs and workshops tend to be structured in therapy settings. The actual exercises at each stage of this model can vary widely, but I found it mapped onto my experience leading workshops with songwriting groups quite well. In Wigram's model, as with music education, the workshops are led by at least one music therapist or teaching artist. Sometimes it's multiples or combinations of music therapists and or teaching artists as well. But it does generally seem that someone with experience in songwriting is needed to guide the activity along. The first stage of Wigram's model is an introduction to songwriting, which is simply when the client or clients become interested in trying this practice. The second stage is the generation of lyrics. Some practitioners prefer to start with the music, but it seems like most prefer to start with the lyrics. Dr. Reinhardt explains why. Because everybody speaks language, right? They already have access to that, whereas... If I don't know like some of the skills that the students have in terms of music or understanding, that might be a harder thing to get from them all at once, right? So, but if we have a lyric, it's going to kind of tell us if the song is going to be major or minor. It's going to give us an approximation of, is it a happier song or kind of a more melancholy song? And so that's going to help us understand what tempo we're going to do the song in. Sometimes the lyrics are pre-composed by the workshop leader. Other times, the group members write individually and then put their best lines together for the group to use. In some cases, the lyrics are geared towards a specific theme or object, like Dr. Genzel Berman explained, and in others, the theme is teased out over the course of going through the writings by the participants. Here's Dr. Reinert again. You might throw out an idea and you have a discussion, okay? Like, let's just all throw out as many... um, words about this topic that we can, we throw them up on the board and, you know, you kind of look at them and you're like, oh, well, that's kind of a cool idea. Okay. Oh, that's kind of a cool idea. So let's take the top five ideas. Let's vote as a class and decide which one of those top five ideas kind of like seems like it has the most possibilities as a song title and has like maybe something to unpack. And then from there, you can kind of do a little bit of individual work where they sort of either word web some of those ideas, you know, like a Venn diagram where they're just writing down as many words as they can associate with that kind of on their own or and or doing some sort of free write or story writing exercise about the words. So they're kind of like getting their own thoughts down and then coming back together and, you know, everybody's throwing out ideas and kind of, you know, throwing out a line here and, okay, we want it to be, let's make it this rhyme scheme in the verse and let's make it this rhyme scheme in the chorus and, okay, let's, let's have a bridge. There are a lot of different approaches, but compiling the lyrics is usually the first step of group composition. The next step is to write music to accompany the lyrics, and again, this can be done in a variety of ways that might include improvisation, formal composition, fragments of chords and melodies that are edited and combined and debated by the group. In a lot of cases, this is often the part where the facilitator or facilitators really intervene in the group dynamic to help speed this process along and to lend their expertise. But not always, as Dr. Genzel Derman explains. She's referring here to a gratitude song that the Acoustic Youth Program writes for the mentor as a thank you at the end of the program. So we can have something that's a little bit more directive for those kids that don't have any background in music. Um, And then if we do have a group, you know, sometimes we have kids that go through this process several times. So I have a group right now where this is like the third or fourth time they've been through the group and the gratitude song, they know, they they know what's coming up and they enjoy the idea of making the music along with it. And sometimes they don't even need uh, the therapeutic uh, side of it. They, you know, we're just there to kind of monitor and, and help manage things, but they do the music end all themselves. So after an introduction to songwriting, some lyrical compiling and organizing, and then some musical composition to go with those lyrics, the song can be edited and arranged until you have something that can be written down, performed, and recorded, all of which can be stages of this process, and all of which are determined by both the facilitators 
and the participants. So, we know why groups may write a song together, and we've learned what the typical structure of that process looks like. But what happens on the other end of the process? First of all, is the song any good? Honestly, basically everyone I spoke with said, no, the song isn't particularly good. But that's not really the point. American ethnomusicologist Thomas Torino has written extensively about the concept of participatory performance. The prototypical example of this type of performance is a drum circle. In it, there is no distinction between the artist and the audience. All are expected to participate in some manner, regardless of their level of experience, which makes for a cooperative and egalitarian artistic space. Torino argues that the fact that all are invited to perform inspires those who normally wouldn't contribute to do just that. And the degree to which sociality is achieved becomes the barometer of success rather than the quality of the performance. In other words, the importance of participatory performance is in its process orientation. It's not about the final product. I would argue that group and collective songwriting is a form of participatory composition, parallel to that of participatory performance. And it sure seemed like most of the people whose work I read and who I spoke with agreed with me. Dr. Genzel Derman again. In this particular program, it is absolutely not about the product. Uh, we have kids that are coming in that have never sang, that have never done anything musically. They just love it. And that's the whole idea is we want this program to be for everyone, not just musicians. And here's Quetzal Flores discussing how he and his partner came to understand collective songwriting, accompanied by what I think was a toaster oven that apparently has impeccable timing. It was an epiphany for us because at the time we, we had a lot of questions, right? And we were, we were embedded in a community. We were doing community work. However, it was still in, in early stages of understanding how to fluidly embed, how to hold those two pieces as organizer and artist, mm. right? And, and how to remove it from the stage the politics of, of performance, right? The stage, the separation between um, audience or receiver and, uh, you know, um, uh, performer, you know, the, the anointed being, you know, the giver, the, the projector, right? Dr. Gonzalez writes that, quote, the song is not the most important aspect of collective songwriting, but rather its ability to engender solidarity, end quote. And the University of Washington researchers wrote that in their program with the Yakima Nation, quote, process took precedence over product. Emphasis on authentic replication of Western masters like Beethoven, Sousa, or even Ellington was discarded, and synthesis of tribal tradition and popular culture took center stage, end quote. So I think it's pretty safe to say that the process is the point. That doesn't mean that the final product is entirely without use, though. Doctors Baker and Wigram wrote that, quote, Songs created within therapeutic contexts can be viewed in terms of process and product. They are evidence of the beginning, middle, or end of a therapeutic process, or an entire therapeutic process in and of itself. Clients create songs that reflect feelings and thoughts felt or experienced at points during their treatment and are therefore documents of their therapeutic journey. Nevertheless, these creations are also artifacts, products that clients can revisit, share with others, and be evidence of mastery, creativity, and self-expression, end quote. That therapeutic process begins when the participants feel they are in a safe environment and begin to share their experiences and ideas with the group, which is usually in the lyric stage. Again, Dr. Genzel Derman. So you're storytelling through music, and that's, it's so powerful for people to be seen, to be heard, and to tell their stories. A similar phenomenon occurs in the collective songwriting practice. It begins with a sharing of ideas and experiences that Dr. Gonzalez calls testimonio, Spanish for testimony. To her, quote, testimonio is a process of transmitting lived experiences into a literary form, end quote. And that experience can be validating for anyone who has it. Dr. Gonzalez adds that testimonio, too, is about process rather than product. It is about making the person feel seen and heard, not just their words. The team at the University of Washington writes that, quote, 
The genesis of a collectively written song stems from the collective sharing of testimonial, a generation of ideas, each born through the lived experiences of those involved, and eventually synthesized into a collective artistic artifact. And that is the other great benefit of group and collective songwriting. The synthesization of that artifact leads to the building of community. Doctors Wigram and Baker wrote that, quote, Within groups, songs assist in developing group cohesiveness, encouraging social interaction, and group support, end quote. Judith Kate Friedman, a songwriter who runs a group songwriting program for the elderly called Songwriting Works, wrote that, quote, As in a mural or quilting project, every song contains unique elements that contributors recognize as their own, while the whole serves as a portrait of a community, end quote. Again, Dr. Genzel Derman. Even a portion, if the music is something that somebody else really resonates with. You know what happens is oxytocin goes off in the brain, right? Because even somebody looking at you in the eye and going, that's a great idea. When that happens, the other person immediately has a reaction to it. And then you're also connected in that moment. And then creativity happens and there's a spark. And then somebody else goes, oh yeah, that's really cool. And I think this should happen. And so this is the kind of process that happens where all of a sudden everybody is feeling it and they're part of something bigger. They start to recognize that, you know, I'm part of something that's bigger than, than myself. And that in and of itself is really, really beneficial because as humans, we are put on this planet, we are wired for connection um, and feeling a part of something. And that helps with self-esteem. Um, it, it's just... It's something that um, is just really, really valuable to, the, to mental health in general. And that improvement in individual mental health can translate to improvements in community health as well. The researchers from the University of Washington wrote this about their experience with the Yakima Nation. Quote, Throughout this process, students raised issues of cultural loss between generations while responding to ways to tackle these issues, such as being role models within their community. In the context of the tribal school, these discussions provided a space where students could call upon their experiences as native individuals to formulate new approaches to the issues their communities face. And research on Heartbeat Inc.'s efforts has found that group songwriting creates a dialogic space in which participants can share their experiences of segregation and injustice, but also their aspirations, and to find where those experiences and aspirations overlap with people on the other side of the cultural divide. Quetzal Flores explains how powerful this experience can be as a tool for social justice. There are systems embedded in these practices that teach us how to operate in, in imaginative and, frankly, radical and decolonial ways. To summarize, Dr. Baker and her colleague Dr. Julie Ballantyne write that, quote, as group members create songs collaboratively, participants experience support as they share memories, experiences, contexts, or feelings. Here the complexity of issues can be explored from different group members' perspectives, leading to acceptance, validation, and normalization of feelings. Group songwriting can be utilized to explore ways of coping, facilitate interdependence, and enable group members to experience a group process that involves conflict resolution, tolerance for different views, tolerance for diversity, as well as problem solving. The group songwriting experience enables collaboration as a means to help people find new meaning in their lives, end quote. That new meaning can be found both individually and communally, and can result in everything from better therapeutic outcomes in individuals to the building of communities and the removal of burials between communities in the outside world. Now seems like a good time to summarize what we've learned about group and collective songwriting to this point. We know it's used by music therapists, music educators, and artist activists in a variety of communities and countries. We found out that, while specific exercises and methods can vary widely, group and collective songwriting seems to have a fairly established structure. It is usually led by a music therapist who helps the group decide on the topic to generate and edit lyrics and assists with the music composition. Practitioners have told us that they need to cultivate a sense of safety in the room before they can begin, and by the end, the group feels much more connected than they did when they first entered the room. Participants also feel a sense of ownership and competence at having created something artistic, and that feeling is connected to all sorts of mental health benefits. And lastly, the practitioners emphasize that it is not the final song or product that is the most important outcome of this process. Rather, it is the feelings generated from engaging in the process itself 
that last. What we don't seem to know much about, surprisingly, is how this process came to be so widespread and where it originated from historically and geographically. Quetzal Flores and Dr. Marta Gonzalez trace their version of collective songwriting back to Chicano-Chicana artivista movements and indigenous cultures in Central and South America. I don't have nearly enough time to cover the fascinating history of this, but if you're interested, please, please read Dr. Gonzalez's book, Chicano-Chicana Artivistas, Music, Community, and Transborder Tactics in East Los Angeles. Dr. Felicity Baker traces the music therapy practice back to the 1960s and the emergence of the singer-songwriter in popular music. But most research on the practice doesn't discuss the history of group and collective songwriting, and when they do, they only look back a few decades, and frankly, they tend to be vague about it. I was getting frustrated that I couldn't find any history on this in the months of research I'd done. But then I got an idea, when I couldn't prove, but seemed like it could be the only explanation. And then the other day, I reread the article by Judith Kate Friedman, the artist and educator who created the Songwriting Works program for the elderly, and found that she'd already written what I'd been thinking better than I ever could. Friedman describes the philosophy of the organization like this. Songwriting Works is a collective musical experience that springs from the oral tradition. It starts with the premise that all human beings are inherently intelligent, musical, and cooperative and that making one's own music is a healthy, normal part of biological as well as cultural expression. In the United States today, listening to music, rather than originating it, has become the norm. Yet, over the course of history, in all times and places, singing and making up tunes has occupied a central, if not pervasive, function in human life, very much as musical intelligence has occupied a distinct role in human cognition. Did you catch that? Quote, over the course of history in all times and places, singing and making up tunes has occupied a central, if not pervasive, function in human life. End quote. Duh! Of course! Writing songs in groups is what people have done for centuries, for millennia. The practice didn't originate in one place because we've always done it. No one person first wrote about it in a peer-reviewed journal. It's not named after anyone. Group and collective songwriting is actually what people naturally do. Dr. Reiner agrees. Why do you think it's become such a widespread practice across all of these different environments? Well, I don't think it's become. I think it has been like for a really long time. I mean, I, I think that's part of the tradition of songwriting. I mean, co-writing in however many people are on something has been part of songwriting since, you know, I don't know, since we were writing songs as human beings, right? I mean, if you think about old ballads or, um, you know, that's how they would share the news from the next town over, right? And like you would teach the song to the people that you were going through because that would help them remember the things that were happening and they would add on to it and like they would maybe make up their own harmonies to it and they would add to their own thing and then that person might go to another town and they would share their song and like that would morph and change and move and so... I think this has been a human kind of a thing for a really long time. Quetzal Flores agrees too. That's exactly it. That's right. exactly it. Is, it is a return and step forward at the same time because time is expansive and culture is expansive in that way um, to, to healthy ways of being in community with music, right? Yeah. So that's exactly it. That's not to say that writing songs individually or in small groups isn't what we naturally do. There's plenty of evidence that that's not the case. But for some reason, I didn't go into this project thinking that writing in groups was a natural thing, too. I thought it was a fairly niche, idiosyncratic way of music making. That's a pretty big mistake to make. But I have a feeling I'm not the only one who has made it. Try and picture Ludwig van Beethoven in your mind for a second. You've probably seen images of him. Wild, graying hair, a dour, scowling face. Maybe you picture him waving his arms like a man possessed in front of an orchestra. Or maybe howling in frustration at his piano. He's revered not just for the beauty and innovation of his music, but for his refusal to bow to the whims of the nobility who patronized him and his fellow composers. He's stubborn and difficult, 
but he's undeniably talented. He's the prototypical tortured artist, the consummate example of a musical genius. In 1840, some guy named Thomas Carlyle wrote that, quote, the history of the world is but the biography of great men, end quote. Thomas Carlyle actually wasn't just some guy. He was a Scottish historian and a writer who was quite renowned in his time. And you can kind of see his point, too. We're often taught history through the lens of things used to be one way, and then this great person came along and single-handedly changed everything. But just as quickly, you probably start to see this so-called great man theory fall apart. First of all, there are a lot of men who we talk about in history classes that I think we'd be better off not describing as great. I'm also willing to bet that Carlyle really did mean men. Just men. White, straight, cisgender, and probably wealthy men. And even if we include along with the great men, the great women, and great people from marginalized groups, this theory is still way oversimplified, don't you think? Every great man stands on the shoulders of who came before them. There are lots of people, groups of people, who affected history in small but important ways. We may not get to all of them in a history class or a biography, but we shouldn't confine ourselves to a theory of history that denies their impact. I'll admit that the great man theory is something of a straw man argument. It is pretty pervasive, though, even in music. My college history textbook had two chapters titled Beethoven and after Beethoven. In a similar history textbook on pop music, those chapters might be about the Beatles or Elvis. And I'm not saying they aren't giants who changed the course of music. I'm just saying that it's more accurate to say they are representatives of a larger group of people, all of whom deserve some credit for the way things played out. And in many cases, they deserve some credit for the great work, too. Both Elvis and the Beatles covered songs written by black songwriters who didn't get their fair share of the profits. And even in their own band, we tend to elevate the work of Paul and John over the contributions of George and Ringo because Paul and John were credited for writing the songs. But who gets credit is ultimately a business arrangement. Watch any part of the new documentary Get Back, and I dare you to tell me that George and Ringo didn't help define those legendary tunes. So then, why is this theory still so pervasive in music? If you dig a little deeper, it seems like the great man theory was a favorable narrative for the same people by whom these things are always perpetuated. Those who sought to profit. Polish musicologist Dr. Anna Piotrowska writes that Beethoven, a contemporary of Carlyle, became the subject of a great man narrative pushed by the noble class of Vienna, Austria, right at the same time that a bourgeoisie class was emerging and challenging their cultural dominance by funding musical halls and concerts of their own. Quote, In asserting for Beethoven, the composer of their choice, the status of the great composer and promoting him in this entourage, Beethoven's patrons, mainly aristocratic ones, were not without ulterior motives. They managed to sustain their role as cultural leaders who not only possessed good taste, but while acting as real connoisseurs, could also still define the boundaries of what good, great music was, and thus dictate what should be considered as fashionable and desirable, and what not. End quote. Clearly, the authors of my old music textbook bought into that narrative over 150 years later. As the classical tradition increasingly diverged from popular audiences in the 21st century, composers invoked this same argument to explain their relevance and importance. Composer Milton Babbitt famously wrote an essay in 1958 titled, Who Cares If You Listen? Babbitt didn't approve of the title, but you can see why the editor chose it. In the essay, Babbitt argued that the music he and his peers were composing had evolved to an incredibly advanced stage similar to that of the sciences, and this advanced music flew over the heads of the everyday listener. Quote, Why should the layman be other than bored and puzzled by what he is unable to understand, music or anything else? After all, the public does have its own music, its ubiquitous music, end quote. In his mind, Babbitt was writing the musical equivalent of particle physics, while songwriters were doing algebra. But that's what great men did. And great men shouldn't have to mingle with that which was common. I dare suggest that the composer would do himself and his music an immediate and eventual service by total, resolute, and voluntary withdrawal from the public world to one of private performance and electronic media he wrote. He and his peers promptly began to do so, and in many ways, they still do. They are assisted, as Babbitt predicted, mostly by universities and wealthy patrons. 
This isn't just a stuffy old classical idea, however. It was pervasive in popular music for decades, particularly in rock music. Here's Danny Ross, an artist, producer, and journalist based out of New York City. For um, those of us who are uh, a little bit older in their 30, I'm in their 30s, I'm, I'm 37, you know, uh, we sort of came up in this rock and roll uh, tradition where you, you, you know, the, the heroes that were lauded, um, you know, were, were the Paul McCartney and, and the Bob Dylans and the Kurt Cobains and the idea that was brought upon um, uh, up and coming musicians for decades was you learn an instrument, you write your songs, you become, uh, you know, boy genius, girl genius in your, in your room writing songs. And, um, you know, I can't stress enough how that model was um, really stressed um, to us up and coming musicians. You know, I, I, I think it has to do with our collective belief and, and desire to believe in a particular particular level of genius that is uh, bestowed upon certain individuals and there's a mythology that's created around that whether it's Mozart or Paul McCartney um, and uh, I do think that has infiltrated its way into the rock and roll tradition. Arguably what killed group songwriting as an established practice in the West was our good old friend capitalism. Great man theory can be tied pretty directly to moneyed interests of the time, and the absence of participatory composition is pretty closely connected with capitalism as well. Dr. Torino writes that the forms of performance in which there is separation between musician and audience, quote, articulate best with these broadly shared habits of capitalist conception and valuing. And Dr. Gonzalez has a lot to say on this subject, too. She notes that, quote, Participatory music and dance practices are rare in capitalist societies due to the fact that capital markets as social institutions have arranged the way we think, interact, and therefore engage with music more generally. This is going to be an oversimplification, of course, but there's a narrative starting to form here. It seems that for most of human history, we wrote songs together in large groups. But then along came capitalism and colonialism, and the great man theory along with them, and things started to change. Within a few decades of 1840, when Thomas Carlyle coined great man theory, European nations had carved up most of the Earth's surface among themselves and were in the thick of the capitalist industrial revolution. At that same time, sheet music became a popular commodity, which marked the birth of music publishing. Eventually, recordings of songs were being played in every home. And in that economic system, it made more sense for those who had the power to limit who got credit or who even got to write songs. But now, as the number of average songwriting credits are going up, popular music seems to be returning to larger groups, which, again, used to be normal. But remember that group and collective songwriting is inherently process-oriented, not product-oriented. So why are people increasingly writing in large groups in the very product-oriented popular music industry. What triggered the change? There are a lot of structural and business reasons for this development, which I'm going to explore with the help of Dr. Reinert and Danny Ross. First, music publishing is where the money is these days. I think part of it is the way the remuneration for songs works in the music industry which is you're gonna make more money if you have a publishing credit on a song because that's where the money is gonna go, right? If you're just the singer on a song, you're only gonna make mechanical royalties, like, you know, the ones like off the performance, you're not gonna get as big of a cut of the pie as if you also have a songwriting credit on that song. The money in songwriting credits is why you see major writers like Paul Simon and Bruce Springsteen selling their catalogs for hundreds of millions of dollars. It's also why certain artists and producers are insisting that they get songwriting credit, even if their contributions to a track may not have typically been considered songwriting 40 years ago. And in some cases, they don't even deserve it. And then sometimes you have artists, um, and this is not spoken of really, who actually don't had no hand in writing the song at all, um, but their manager is able to get them a publishing credit because otherwise they won't release the song um, because they have leverage. Some of the industry's most successful tunesmiths behind hits like New Rules by Dua Lipa and Seven Rings by Ariana Grande wrote an open letter about just this in 2021. 
Another thing is that the way pop music is written is changing. It used to be a lot easier to call the person with the pen and paper the songwriter and the person at the tape machine the producer, at least in most genres. But the lines were always blurrier in hip-hop, where producers were expected to make the beats for rappers from the very inception of the art form. Most of these beats used parts of existing recordings or samples, and under U.S. copyright law, the authors of the original samples have to be credited in the vast majority of cases. On the um, rap and hip-hop tracks, some of that is they need to credit anyone that they're sampling as a writer because they're essentially part of the framework of the song. And a lot of times there'll be a lot of those kind of overlapping, even pieces that we're not even, we can't quite hear, you know, individually, but they overlap and you hear them as a thing. So those are all going to be listed because it's easier to list them as a, a co-writer than it is to get sued by them later because you're stealing the sample or you didn't want to pay for the sample. That's why the song I Like It, a 2018 hit by Cardi B, Bad Bunny, and J Balvin, credited the songwriters of the sample used from the song I Like It Like That by Tony Pabon and Manny Rodriguez. But outside of Tony and Manny, there were 19 other writers credited. So that doesn't explain everything. In the 1980s and 90s, hip-hop producers began experimenting more with entirely original beats, a process that became even easier with the proliferation of Pro Tools and digital audio workstation software. By the early 2000s, versions of this software were coming standard on Apple computers, right when hip-hop and rap became the dominant form of popular music. So as the hip-hop ethos became pervasive in the industry, so did the looser restrictions on what the word and role of the producer meant. There's also the whole hip-hop culture thread in which basically you have tracks and beats that are passed around and then like producers will add their thing to it and then it gets passed around. Um, you know, it's digitally, the music is going from room to room to room with different foot, you know, fingerprints being left on it. And that's why you have 15 people credited on a single, single song. And speaking of technology, digital audio workstations allowed recording and writing sessions to be saved and worked on later by someone else somewhere else, whenever it was convenient. When someone felt stuck or didn't like the way something sounded, they could send the file off to another collaborator. Here, Danny Ross is referring to A&R departments at record labels, which is basically the artist development wing of that label. Because a lot of A&Rs want to feel like they're, they're doing something. <laughs> They will then take the session and give it to someone else um, and be like, what can you, you know, what, what can you do with it? Um, and oftentimes that session will float around from, from computer to computer remotely and people add, um, you know, things here and there um, that will get them 5% publishing. For a great example of how this works in popular music, check out the video that the New York Times put together about the 2018 song The Middle by Zed, Marin Morris, and Gray. So now, in today's popular music industry, collaborating with a great number of people to write a single song is the norm. So much so that Danny Ross had to learn how to do it just to survive. One has to adapt and become part of this more collaborative network. Um, because otherwise you're making music by yourself to a vacuum, which um, I, I have certainly, you know, been victim to that as well, um, which is great. You know, if that gives you artistic fulfillment to make your own songs and like you feel like you did it by yourself and you feel good about it. Great. Um, have, you know, I, I hope you and your f friends and family enjoy that. And if you're able to get that out to a wider group of people, fantastic. Um, however, it's likely that you're not um, working in the commercial music industry. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, with that comes a, a necessary um, role to take a step back and work in a more collaborative fashion. So there are a lot of differences between how group and collective songwriting work inside and outside the music industry. Still, I don't think money and technology are the only forces at work here and I think there might be more overlap than immediately appears. First off, group songwriting and popular music may not occur with everyone in the room at the same time, but that doesn't mean it's not still participatory composition. Music therapist Dr. Elizabeth Mitchell performed a case study in 2019 of a coffeehouse music performance at a Canadian mental health facility, and noting that Dr. Torino argued that participatory performance could be structured sequentially, 
The concert had many of the same effects of participatory performance, even though not everyone was on stage at the same time. Similarly, participatory composition, or group and collective songwriting, could be structured sequentially. And that's exactly what many songwriters are doing. But I've also had a theory nagging at me since I began this project. To write a song with multiple people, you need to have a collective vision, an idea or set of ideas, musical and lyrical, that everyone can agree upon. If that's the case, it's probably safe to say that the idea or ideas you choose collectively probably can't be too complicated to be understood and approved by everyone involved. And if that's the case in the writer's room, why wouldn't it be the case for the audience too? If the barrier to entry to a song is lower in the writer's room, wouldn't it also be lower for the audience? Don't get me wrong, Bob Dylan is a master of language and an expert guitar player, but it's understandable that many of his songs might be a little too dense or heady for a crowd that just wants to dance. And for that, Drake and his team of 14 or 15 other credited songwriters might be a better fit. I ran this idea past Dr. Reinert. Oh, that's an interesting concept. Yeah, I think so. I think it also depends on what you're going into the right for and why and with whom. Oh, totally. Right? And so, like, if you and I are writing together, we might just say, hey, let's write and see what happens, right? And the door is totally open. We don't have any expectation that it needs to meet a certain thing or we don't have to lower any bars. We're just, like, throwing out ideas. And I think and coming in with ideas and finding one that, like, kind of resonates with both of us, right? And I think in any co-writing situation, you're looking for something that everybody in the room can kind of grab onto at least a little bit right um and hopefully as you said like also if we're writing it we're trying to write a pop tune and a like a quote-unquote hit or something which you don't have any control over whether it's a hit or not but you're trying to make something that kind of lands with a larger demographic you want to you know have a topic that is you know something that a lot of people can understand that doesn't mean you have to talk about it in the same way you can be clever with the way you talk about it. But if I talk about like swimming with octopuses, that's probably not something that a lot of people have had an experience with. So it's probably not a great choice for a co-write I mean, for a pop tune. I, I watched that documentary too. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? Like it's not like a tangible experience that most people have like ever had. So for sure. You know, whereas like love or grief or you know kind of these other you know long distance relationships like mm -hmm. so many other people have had things about that that there's more to say from the room too i don't think it's crazy to think that a song written by a group of people might be more easily understood by a larger group of people than something someone wrote on their own again popular music songwriting is not the same thing as group or collective songwriting the writers are more experienced, who the facilitator is can vary, and the motivations for writing are usually very different. But I find it comforting to think that the music in my headphones is related to the music that is created to heal individuals and communities, because I know that the music in my headphones can have that same effect on me and the other people in my life. Towards the end of our conversation, Danny Ross posed a really great question. There is a legitimate question to be had is like, the integrity of the art itself, um, is it objectively, if you can answer that, better or worse in a, in a collaborative sense than in an individual sense? <laughs> Do we really feel that artistic integrity is lost by having more people touch a piece of art? He's got a point. One of the major benefits of collective and group songwriting, after all, is that it's about process and not product. But if professional songwriters who are explicitly trying to create a good product choose to write in this way, is their product worse? There are plenty of people out there who would say that Drake's songs pale in comparison to Bob Dylan. I'm sure that one reason they feel that way is because, to them, Dylan was a singular genius with a singular vision, and the power to execute it all on his own. I'll admit that <gasps> I've never been a huge fan of Bob Dylan. His voice isn't for everyone. But when Drake first came on the scene, even I would have told you that Dylan's music was better, more important, more genius. Nowadays, I'm much more conflicted. I think that each of their music accomplishes different things for different people, 
Actually, increasingly, I think their music accomplishes different things for many of the same people, now that we can all just find their music instantaneously online. So I don't want to judge Drake at all versus Dylan or Beethoven. I want to celebrate them all. I don't only want to celebrate genius, but also what the great composer and producer Brian Eno calls senius. In a 2010 interview with The Guardian, Eno said that, quote, It's invidious to separate each contribution. It's not individuals who create things. It's scenes, a community of people, end quote. And of course, Beethoven was part of one of the most famous musical communities in history. The first Viennese school with Joseph Haydn, Franz Schubert, and Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And let's not forget that Mozart came from a home filled with great composers like his father and sister. Bob Dylan emerged from a legendary New York scene in the 1960s with Pete Seeger, Peter Paul and Mary, Judy Collins, and Jose Feliciano. Drake's scene is a little harder to tease out, but you can get a sense of it from the rappers who are regularly featured on his tracks and appear in his writer's room. Or you could just call his scene the entire internet. You wouldn't be wrong. I'm not trying to suggest that there's no such thing as individual genius, and I'm definitely not suggesting that the popular music industry is going to overthrow capitalism. To me, the point is that group and collective songwriting are practices that acknowledge that all artists no matter their background or experience, come from and are part of a community. In fact, the practice is actually an invitation for that community to come into the writer's room and to share in the creative process together. That can be a fun, healing process for all involved, and it is increasingly becoming the norm in popular music, which, as Danny Ross explains, is a good thing. It, does art get better or worse when you add more people to it? Um, I, I think that's a real question. Um, but in terms of like um, societal health and communal health um, and, uh, and industry health, I think it's all been a positive thing for us to become a, a more collaborative in nature. Yeah. And just to reinforce one thing, like we should be applauding the fact that, you know, the guy or, or girl who did the, the drum programming or came up with a cool synth line is now credited as a songwriter. Again, group and collective songwriting was always the norm. And now it seems like in some ways we're starting to get back to it or to at least acknowledge that the songwriting process was always more collaborative than the short list of names on the copyright certificate would have you believe. And while I'm sure there is a great debate to be had over whether or not the music that comes out of that process is better or worse, why don't we all try to write a song together before we make up our minds? Maybe we'll have so much fun that we'll forget all about that argument, at least for a little while. This podcast was written, produced, and narrated by Jake Kassman. Our editor is Jake Kassman, our researcher is Jake Kassman, and our booker is Jake Kassman. Music by Drunken Logic and Jake Kassman. Special thanks to Dr. Kat Reinert, Dr. Brett Genzel-Derman, Danny Ross, Quetzal Flores, Dr. Marta Gonzalez, Dr. Beatrice Zolari, Dr. Nate Sloan, and Professor Chris Sampson for their help.